Blog Talk Radio. Child Abuse Now show on the Blog Talk Radio Network, sponsored by the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. My name is Bill Murray, and with me here is Kim Larkin and Sandy, who's our special guest, and somebody else just called in. We'll find out who that is in a moment. Uh, we will be doing a show based on basically Sandy Phillips Kirkham's life. Uh, she's from Ohio, and uh, we have some things in common, she and I. Uh, so we'll get into that in a little bit. You should know that NASCA is a nonprofit organization that uh, is not funded and doesn't belong to anybody else. So we have, uh, you know, we have a a, 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 a problem with uh, funding the, the organization. So what we do is we have um, uh, we have we're self-supporting through our own contributions. Boy, I'm very tongue-tied today. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, Kim, are you here tonight? Kim, are you it's here tonight? Right. I have four four people here, including me. So I know Sandy is the five one three. Who's the six three one? Ah, that's me, that's Lori. Lori. Oh. Yeah. And then the other one, the other one must be uh, Kim, right? Six six one. Philip. Philip. Wow. Okay. Well, it sounds like we're having a problem getting Kim to call in. She did warn me about that. What could happen? Uh, apparently, where she is tonight is very um, snowy <laughs> and like a blizzard type snow. So she wasn't sure if she could make it or not. And if she can't, that's okay. I'm here. <laughs> Lori's here. Philip's here. <laughs> and. So is our special guest. Now, I got tongue-tied in saying that uh, our organization is kind of unique. We only deal with child abuse and the issues of child abuse. It's prevention, intervention, and recovery. So there's a lot of topics. But um, I want to read the, the mission statement and then we can start the show. It says, the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse, we have a single purpose at NASCA, to address issues related to child abuse and trauma including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional tr- troubles, and neglect, 
and we do so with only two goals. One, to educate the public, especially as related to help society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, presenting facts that show child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone. And two, offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse, and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. Okay, that's that's good enough for me. <laughs> oh, there's Kim. Hi, Kim. Oh, let me open your mic. Uh, hey. Can you hear me? There you are. I just had to open your mic. Yeah. Thank you for oh, okay. calling I'm in. Okay, I'm over the computer, so it's it's. I'm not able to call in. That's fine. Um, are you able to see this, the show? Are you able to see the show description and the panel? The panel names? Um, yeah. Hold on. Let me turn, see if I can turn up my volume. Yeah. All right. All I've done so far is identify all the people that are on the line, and I have not started talking about the show itself, only about the nonprofit. And you were scheduled to be the host tonight. I, I'd like you to, to take a stab at doing that, but I'll be here with you, of course. And we okay, have yeah, Lori. I'm not, I'm not going to – I can't oh. see anybody else for some reason. It's not letting me see anybody else, but I can go ahead and I can read the our guest information. But okay. as far as calling yeah. on people and stuff, I can't see them, so I don't know where they That's are. That's okay. Uh, I can do that. <laughs> we have Lori and Philip along with you, and our special guest is Sandy, okay? Hi, Sandy. Hi. Hello. Hi, Lori. Hi, Philip. Hi, Sandy. <laughs> well, welcome. We're glad you're here. And um, so I will read a little bit of your bio, and then we'll let you take over. Okay. So tonight's special guest is Sandy Philip Kirkham, Philip Kirkham from Cincinnati, Ohio, She's a clergy abuse survivor and author of the book, Let Me Pray Upon You, that explains how a charismatic youth pastor, pastor <laughs> um, prayed upon her, a betrayal which left her broken, with a shattered faith and the ultimate shame of being blamed and forced from the church that she loved. From their very first meeting, the new youth minister, slowly and methodically, from the sacred relationship of a trusted spiritual leader to one of abuse, sexual, emotional, and physical. When his actions were discovered, he was simply moved to another church, leaving Sandy to pay for his deeds. She was not his first victim, nor would she be his last. One of the greatest gifts one can give to a victim of abuse is to allow us to give us words to our trauma. Our healing comes when our pain is given a voice. Um, We understand that this topic can be uncomfortable and it may make people uneasy, but, you know, that, like she said, our healing comes from the pain when we're given a voice. So soon after, she began her own journey of healing from clergy abuse, came a need and a passion to speak out on the issue. Through the years, she's continuously spoken to many groups and churches on the topic of prevention, and she meets many courageous survivors. And there's a little bit more on there, but I'm going to go ahead and stop there, Sandy, and just let you kind of take over. And I, 
Have you been on with us before? I have not. No. Okay. Well, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Well, that you're I'm a part of the family. <laughs> Thank you. So what we usually do is just ask you to kind of start from, you know, the earliest memory that you have or that you want to start from, because this is your show, and um, we're just here to support you. So we'll have you talk a little bit, you know, start your story, and then probably when you get through, you know, like your early years, then maybe we'll stop you and just see if if the panel has any questions or if we have a question for you. Would that be okay? Yeah, um, you know, my abuse yeah. uh, actually took place when I was a teenager, so, you know, mine might okay. be a little bit different. So I can basically kind of tell you this, my story, and then maybe we can, you know, see what people have, the questions they might have. Um, sure. And I will say from the beginning, I'm very open to any question. There's no question that I'm afraid to answer that is too personal. Uh, so feel free to ask any question you might have. Um, my story is one of um, – I – Started, I was sexually abused by my youth pastor when I was 16. Um, I started attending church when I was about eight years old. My parents were divorced. We didn't, they didn't attend church. So when my best friend up the street asked me to attend with her, I did, and I absolutely fell in love with the church. Um, I went to Sunday school. I went to vacation Bible school. I attended church camp. I just loved everything about it. Um, and as my faith deepened, so did my involvement in the church. And so by the time I was 15 and 16 years old, I was teaching Sunday school. I was singing in the choir. I was leading prayer groups. Um, I think it would be no exaggeration to say that the doors of the church were open. I was there. Shortly after I turned 16, our church hired a new youth pastor. Uh, it was very clear from the beginning that he was different than any youth pastor we'd ever seen. He was very charismatic, he had a dynamic personality, and even though he was 30 and married with two children, he really identified with the youth in the church. He knew our music, he went to the football games, he drove a convertible, he dressed like we did, he had sideburns and wore cut-off jeans. So there was a lot about him that made the youth drawn to him, but also the adults as well. His sermons were very exciting and mesmerizing, and he was really treated like a rock star. Um, he brought in new ideas to the church, and within a very short time, the church was growing by numbers um, like we'd never seen before. And so when he tapped into me to be one of the leaders, no one was surprised, but he started spending more time with me, giving me special assignments. He made me the song leader. And because I didn't see my dad much during this time, I was flattered, and, and I craved the attention that he was giving me, um, but that attention would soon turn into something very dark. So um, all the things we did know about him, there was one thing we didn't know, and that was shortly after he arrived at our church, a young woman from his first church came forward and accused him of sexually inappropriate behavior. When my elders confronted him with this information, he didn't deny it. He said it was true. He said it was a mistake. He was sorry and it would never happen again. Uh, the elders decided to allow him to continue as a youth pastor, and no information was ever given to the congregation. Within six months of that accusation, uh, he was kissing me in my hallway after a youth group meeting. Um, the meeting was at my home, and he waited for everyone to leave. He began telling me how much he cared for me and how much he appreciated the work I was doing in the church and um, 
you know, he he made me feel special that way. And then all of a sudden he just bent down and he kissed me. And it was kind of this quick, innocent kiss. So I remember thinking, he just kissed me. But then I thought, well, you know, this is my youth pastor. He wouldn't be doing anything he shouldn't be doing. And he had always been very demonstrative with uh, everyone in the church. He was always hugging them. He was always telling them that he loved them. Um, so this wasn't totally out of line of his character. So I kind of just brushed it off. Um, I babysat for his family because his wife worked evenings. And so this gave him the perfect opportunity to really spend this time grooming me and setting me up. Um, the kissing would be infrequent, but, you know, it was kind of sporadic. So, it, again, I just kind of brushed it off. We would sit at, after the kids were in bed. He'd want to sit and talk to me about the Bible. He would talk about church. You know, and none of this seemed out of line to me because he was my youth pastor. Um, certainly if he'd been a neighbor down the street doing this, I'm sure I would have gone home to my mom and said, okay, well, this is weird. This guy wants to sit and talk to me after the kids are in bed. You know, I have no interest in that. But because he was my youth pastor, he tapped into that trust that I had in him. Eventually, uh, after this grooming process of about a year, uh, he had sex with me. And I described this in my chapter in my book of how horrified I was that I found myself in the pastor's bed. I I didn't know what to do. I was panicked. Um, I knew that now I couldn't justify this. I couldn't brush this off. I knew this was wrong. And yet now I was stuck because here he was telling me how much he loved me and that this was a special relationship that God had ordained and that we were now married in God's eyes. And, of course, being raised in the church, you know, at that time in the 70s, you know, and even now, that purity culture of, you know, you should lose your virginity. And once you lose your virginity, you know, you've given this gift away. And I felt totally horrible about what had happened and that I had participated in this. At that point, of course, he was now telling me, you know, you can't tell anyone about this. This is just between the two of us. And I'm thinking I wouldn't want to tell anyone because I don't want them to know this about me either. And, of course, he made it very clear that even if I were to tell someone, no one was going to believe me. Um, Shortly after the sexual intercourse, he became an entirely different person. He became physically violent. He was uh, emotionally damaging my psychic with telling me I wasn't very pretty, I wasn't very smart, I needed to be a better person. Um, it, It was a very difficult relationship in that sense. He'd have his moments where he would be nice and kind, but then he would flip over to this other side. So I never knew who I was going to show up and how I was to to respond. Um, The sex became deviant. Um, It was just a a horrible time, and I felt trapped. I I didn't know how to get out of the situation. Um, There were several times that I would run to him, begging him to let me leave, that this wasn't right, and I felt guilty. And he would respond in one of two ways. One, he would say to me, you know I love you, you know I care for you, and I have to have you in this church helping me. Please don't leave. You know, that was the guilt that was put upon me because I'm thinking, you know, is this what God really wants me in to do? Or he would become physically violent and tell me that I was worthless, tell me that because I was no longer a virgin, no one else would want me. And I came to believe that. Um, the abuse went on for five years. Um, at some point, probably two years in, I gave up. I just, the only way I knew to survive was to accept it, was to figure out ways to make him happy 
and do as he asked. And that way there would be some calm in my life because I was stuck. I was absolutely stuck. And I told people, you know, just because there is a way out doesn't mean you see that way out. And I couldn't see my way through. He had gone through this grooming process with me. I was now in this place where he was manipulative. He was gaslighting me. I was no longer the person I was, and I had no coping skills to deal with this. So the abuse went on for five years until his actions were discovered. Um, He was called in by the elders. I don't know what he said. I don't know what he told them. I was never asked any questions. I was simply told where to sit in church, how to behave, because the whole goal was to keep us a secret so that they can move him to the next church. Um, Of course, rumors started flying, and people started suspecting things, and at one point he was required to address the congregation. He simply stood up and said, I'm a man with faults, and I ask your forgiveness. Two days after that supposed confession, uh, he told me to meet him in a hotel room. He was moved to the next church where he once again committed sexual misconduct. Uh, At this point, I think she was in her 20s. Um, and she became pregnant. So I then was called in by the elders after he left and told because of my behavior I was to leave the church. Um, I will tell you I was devastated. I loved that church. It was everything I had known, and it was my safe haven. And now I was being told that I wasn't fit to worship there, um, and I couldn't understand that he could be forgiven, but I couldn't. I was absolutely blamed for this man's behavior. And so I left, and I was lost. I was just lost. I I didn't know where to go and what to do. And for 27 years, I kept that secret. Um, I eventually married and had two beautiful children, but I lived under the cloud that someone would find out that I had committed this sin with a pastor, that I had had an affair with a married man who was my pastor. And I spent years hiding that secret and fearful that someone would find out. And through those 27 years, I had many triggers that I had to deal with and pretend that I was okay. Um, church you know, became Sandy, so difficult. Yes. Sandy, let's, let's pause at this place because you've now told us the story of the youth pastor, and I don't want you to go too far ahead before some of the panel people may want to make a comment or ask you a question. Is that okay? Okay. Sure. All right. So we have Lori and we have Philip and we have Kim and myself. So who would like to go first? Um, how about me? <laughs> you hit okay. a nerve. I had, I had to just blurt it out. Yep. This is, it's Lori. very difficult to hear um, because my uncle's a bishop. And what you're saying I know existed, but... To compare the two of those people, you, you were under um, unbelievable stress. Um, you know, um, it's like your whole world was crushed, and it's coming across like that. And you're speaking at, about it very well, telling us exactly how you feel. So for like a first-timer, um, you're doing amazing here. My heart, though, was breaking for you. Um, because I know, you know, as everyone pretty much does, what it's like to have to keep a secret that's destroying you, you know, and put it up. But I, you're, you're a fighter. 
I sensed it right away, and what you're doing proves it. So keep well, on going. That. I appreciate that. Thanks. It was, um, you know, that as you say, keeping secrets are are it's, they're not good for your mental health and they're not good for your physical health. Yeah, your body is going to probably have some problems in your like later years because it really does affect the body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So don't be surprised. But still keep doing right. what you're doing. Thank you, Lori. Yeah, keep doing what you're doing. She is. She's moving ahead. Um, we have Philip and we have Kim. Who would like to speak first? Kim, well, I just wanted to say that nobody's perfect. And mistake. I made mistakes before. I'm sure other people made mistakes before, but there's no reason to give up. Thank you, Philip. We don't give up is a very good, uh, very good advice. By the way, uh, we mentioned the name of the book that she wrote. Uh, Let me prey upon you, but the prey is T R E Y, as if uh, a lion preys on a on a rabbit, <laughs> right? Um, mm-hmm. P-R-E-Y is a, it's an, an alliteration, of course, to P-R-A-Y. It's very clever. And there's a link to the book in the description of the show, as there is a link to uh, Sandy's um, Facebook page as well. So be sure to check them out. Kim, would you like to make a comment or ask a question? Sure. Um, thank you so much, Sandy, for sharing that. I know that it it can be easy to even think back upon that stuff and and how it happened. It breaks my heart that whenever I hear about people that have been abused in the church, because that was my sanctuary, that's where I could go to get away from my abuse. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of the opposite because mine was at home. So, um, but I was sent to church as well, like you, or um, my grandmother had found a church that there was a school bus that would go around and pick up kids. Of course, the liability nowadays, they wouldn't do that because I looked into it at one point. But because it was such a, a good memory for me, and I know as an adult that that was the foundation that got me through all of the, the abuse. And so, you know, it really did change, I think, the trajectory of my life at about, I was probably about six or seven when I started going on to church on the school bus. And... um and so I, I believe, you know, that, that faith plays a big part in being able to recover and, and to, to work on recovery because it's a, a lifelong thing. But I'm sorry that you had to go through all of that because it does break my heart, like I said. And anytime I hear a new story, even though that's why we're here, it's, it's just it's sad that so many kids had to deal with all of this. Thank you. So thank you for being so open. I, I, I have a chapter in my book called um, Spiritual Wounds, where, which I talk about the aftermath and how it did affect my spiritual life and um, uh-huh. what I needed. You know, it, he contaminated, you know, the church for me. And it, it, I'm in a better place than I was when I first was able to start dealing with my past. But, um, you know, it, it will never be what it was um, before the abuse. And so I had to work through that. And um that wasn't you know that wasn't easy and i will tell you i i i didn't have anger as much as i had a sadness and a mourning for what he took from me and that 
spiritual part of my life. And so, um, you know, the fact that it was clergy abuse, you know, adds that dimension to it um, that requires even more of a, I think, of a, a healing from because, again, I don't have that sense of faith that I once had to be able to, to go back to that. Um, and he was still a, he yeah. um, was found, you know, to have sexual misconduct the second time to the church when he went after he left our church. And then su- subsequently he also had other um, incidences within his churches mm-hmm. that he supposedly ministering in. Um, and he, I actually confronted him 27 years later. Um, I hired a private investigator to find him. He was ministering at a church in Alabama. And um, I, I, I found out through this co- confrontation with him that he'd had many, you know, I asked him how many instances of abuse had there been. Now, they weren't all children. Um, some were adult women. But he said, oh, there were many. And then he went on to tell me that he had been identified through counseling as a sexual addict. And his supervisor was sitting there, and I looked at him like, and this is an appropriate place for this man to be in position. Um, it just bothered yeah. my mind. Um, but they they yeah. made it very clear that they were not going to do anything about this because in their mind this happened 27 years ago and it didn't have any validity to who he was today. Um, he's still in ministry. Um, I, um, I, I, tried, I, I sent letters to his elders. I went to his president of denomination and basically got the same answer. Um, so, you know, I did all I could to, re- to, to remove well, him from ministry, but that yeah. didn't work. You know, um, they, th- this is common among many uh, churches and, and other organizations, too, that they simply, um, they, cover the, they cover up the uh, controversy by moving the person to another parish or, or to, you know, somewhere else. It's, yeah, exactly. it's unconscionable to me. It's unconscionable. And this, I, I mentioned, um, Sandy, when we started the show, before we started the show, well, at the very early part, that um, that I had a lot of identification I was going to share some with you because I was also a severely uh, abused, sexually abused young boy in the, the Catholic faith. And I was mm. brought up extremely Catholic, very, very Catholic. And I did all those sacraments and all the, you know, everything there was. And I served mass. And I, you know, our whole family was devoted to the church. And and it, it was just shocking that this happened to me. I, I want to talk a bit about actually the second time that I was abused. The first time was at a, was at a camp. And it, it, it lasted a, a month at a time for three years in a row. So it was a summer camp and, and you know, a month, and then a year off, and then a month, and then a year off, and then a month. And then I went to high school after that. And in high school, I went to a prep school in name. It was a prep school, but it was really a minor seminary. So this is how serious I was about Catholicism. I was uh-huh. considering the priesthood as a vocation. And um, I know soon I got there, I think maybe two weeks later, one of the priests there approached me. And then another one. Oh. And, then, and I had told I had told my story to this to this one guy, the first guy. I told the whole story to him in a, in what he called a confession <laughs> in his room. Yeah. And um, he didn't touch me then. And he gave me absolution and so forth. And I went off thinking, well, at least I got, you know, I've got something off my chest. But no, he turned out to be a predator too. And this is the horror of it. 
you know, you talked about, uh, you know, how it destroyed your faith. Well, it destroyed mine. And, uh, and uh, you know, I have felt, you, you used some language. I'm going to have to think about what it was you used. But um, I was, I was like in a fog of, uh, I don't know, uh, not understanding what was happening to me. And I, I don't think this is unusual for uh, for the world. It still goes on. And um, it is up to us to back it down and deal with it, which I did, but um, the best I could. But sometimes these people are beyond your reach anyway, or the statute of limitations is gone or something like that. Right. So, Sandy, I really appreciate you getting us through. This is This was sort of your abuse story that you got to here. And um, I, we're very interested in being a solution-oriented show. <laughs> so uh-huh. maybe, maybe you can talk about, um, you know, how you – maybe you struggled to find an answer or whatever it was, and then you turned a corner and then your life today. Let's just go to that point. Um, okay. We have plenty of time, by the way, plenty, an hour. So you're doing oh, good. great. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, I had I had a – 27 years I suppressed this and I didn't want to tell anyone, but then um, I had a trigger that just sent me over the edge. Uh, that, actually, that's the first chapter in the book where I was driving to my daughter's golf tournament in Tennessee and I, unbeknownst to me, passed the exit to the city to where this abuser moved after our leaving our church. And just seeing that sign just brought everything back and I had to pull to the side of the road, and I just sobbed. And I, I didn't really know what was happening, and I thought, you know, I, I'm going to have to put this back down wherever it came from, but I couldn't. I spent two weeks in an absolute anxiety state. I, my husband left for work, and all I did was walk around the house wringing my hands, wondering what I was going to do with this overwhelming feeling that I was having and why I was having it. And finally, I decided I had to tell someone, and so – for the first time in 27 years, I told my best friend that I'd been sexually abused. And even after I said the word abuse, I don't think I still really absorbed that that's what it was because, again, in my mind, I'd had an affair with a married man. I didn't see it as abuse. But it was through talking with her and then finally having some counseling that I was able to start to see that I wasn't responsible for what was done to me. This was a man I should have trusted in the safest place on earth, and this was done to me. And I didn't have the power to be able to stop it. So that was a turning point. But the other thing that I did that I encouraged victims to do is to read all you can about sexual abuse. You know, learn the terms grooming, manipulation, and gaslighting. Because for me, once I was able to see, okay, that's what he did. He trapped me. He lured me in and trapped me with these things. When he pretended like he was caring for me, those were all just traps to get me to a point where he could control me. And so I encouraged that education. I couldn't read enough about sexual sexual abuse and and clergy abuse. And so that was the first step, too. Um, The other thing that, that I think was helpful to me was to remind myself more than once that, I was powerless in this relationship and that I didn't have the coping skills or the ability or get out of it. And that, that took a, a huge burden off of my shoulders because I walked around with a lot of guilt that I could have stopped this 
and in reality, I couldn't. So that was that took about two years. So I spent about two years, you know, just trying to keep this afloat and figure out what I was to do with this knowledge that I now had. And then the final piece for me really was to finally just let go of the anger and the hate that I was feeling because what I was discovering was I was spending all of this time thinking about what and the anger that I felt for this man and and the fact that I would never get justice and the fact that he was still in the ministry. And it wasn't necessarily a forgiveness, but it was unburdening myself of this man because as long as I was holding on to all this hatred, he was still a part of my life. He was still in my life every single day because every single day I was thinking about him. Every single day I was angry. And it, and it wasn't serving my purpose. Now, that wasn't easy to do. And there are still moments when I think about it and I get angry or I become sad. But I have to move on. I had a wonderful life. I had a wonderful husband and two great kids. And I wasn't enjoying that life because I was still holding on to this past and my anger for him. And and I remember one time I had a nightmare and I woke up and I was so angry and I spent the entire day just furious about what was done to me and how this man had, and I was replaying the things that he had done to me. And by the end of the day, I realized I had wasted this entire day. And I thought to myself, I'll bet you he didn't spend one out of a second thinking of me. And that told me to let go somehow. And that was one of the big turning points for me as well. I really like that point. Um, and I, I think it's true for me too, uh, that, you know, I had to let, I had to let go. You know, I had, there had to be some forgiveness there, but it was really not for him. It was for me, you know, that right. this relationship was screwed up. Yeah. But it hadn't been my fault, even though it felt like I was responsible and shamed about it and so forth. And I had to let go of it. And um, I wonder if other people agree because – go ahead. Sorry. I think the other thing for me um, was that I had to use the word healing, the verb healing as an action verb and not in past tense. I don't know that I can ever say that I'll be healed. I'm always healing. And I think once I accepted the fact that this will be always a part of my life, but it doesn't have to define my life. And right. so each day or each week or each month, whatever, I've taken a step forward. And it's, it's about looking about where I was 10 years ago opposed to where I am now. And, and, and I've made steps forward. And sure, healing is 10 steps forward and maybe four steps backwards sometimes. But it's a process. There's never, for, at least for me, an end and that helps me recognize that I can move forward without looking for that ultimate goal that I'll, I'll be okay and that I will never feel anger again. I'll never feel this again. I will always have those feelings. They'll come at different times in my life. I'll have triggers that I can't control. But that's okay. I, I can deal with them where before I suppressed them and they only intensified by suppressing them and not dealing with them. Right. All right. Let's get let's get a look at this with Lori now. Lori had uh, some obvious injuries from her abuse, so she couldn't keep it a secret in that sense. But I mm-hmm. know that you probably kept inside Lori how horrible you were feeling for a long time. You you held that inside. I'm guessing that. I, I know you pretty well. 
But would you talk to us a little bit about how you maybe came to the conclusion that you needed to get into recovery too? Um, the anger. That's what it was. I was a very angry person. Um, uh-huh. I was born into... Um, my father was a pedophile, so I never got away from it. It was like from birth to 16, I think. Um, and my mother was just like a total crazy person. And a lot of bad things happened to me that made me very, very angry. And I was put in positions that I had no control over but that I didn't want to be. But for some reason, I was like a uh, caretaker and I couldn't abandon certain, like my grandmother in the house. I couldn't abandon her. I knew she wasn't going to be taken care of. Um, but I was still very angry with it. I mean, I had a temper that would go off like a stick of dynamite. And sure. it was doing me no good. It was wasting my time. It was wasting my body. And um, I just wasn't happy. So something did change in my life that I didn't plan on. And I can't recommend it so much to happen. But through one of my child abuse injuries, I have a crush injury to my throat, which makes me choke. And uh, I landed in heaven three times and the one trip that I was up there a very quite a long time I came back and I didn't have the anger I it, God took it from me I all just so didn't know who I was I had a it took me four years to recover but it was an even trade so yeah the anger has to um, get out of your life and any way you can release it you're going to feel better mm-hmm. about yourself with it and then you can fill mm-hmm. in your other, the rest of you with good things. Well, thank well, you for sharing that. I'm going to hear that. Yes. That's, yes. I Go mean, ahead, you, that, that, um You've touched me with that story. Um, and, you know, it's interesting when I listen to other people's story of abuse, you know, I, it it's almost like I think, you know, as horrific as I felt mine was, I always, my heart bleeds and hurts for those when I hear someone else's story as if, you know, it's, it's a sisterhood or brotherhood that we share that we don't want to be a part of, but we are. And um, I just thank you so much for sharing that because it just touched me. And and to each of you for your the, what we've gone through, um, I just I applaud you for your um, willingness to share your stories as well. Well, it's kind of the philosophy of NASCA, you know, that we help each other and. And one of the biggest ways we do it is by, you know, sharing our stories or pieces of our stories, you know, and we support each other in that way. And you right. know, it really is very helpful for a survivor of child abuse, even if they're working on their own, you know, program or whatever, to hear a story about somebody else. It refreshes you that you're not the only one, frankly. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. You know, our brain goes back to, for me, I'm the only one. And we're not mm-hmm. the only one. There are many, many millions of us, of course, even in our country alone, uh, that uh, sort of deserve some kind of healing and recovery. And uh, we're trying to reach some of them. Now, Philip, right. do you have anything that you'd like to share with Kim? Okay, no, Philip. Uh, Kim, sure. to you? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Bill. Um yeah, I think that when it comes to forgiveness, and we've talked about it on this show many times, that it's got to be something that 
that you feel strongly that you want to do. I mean, just forgiving somebody just to forgive them doesn't work for anybody. <laughs> and it definitely doesn't work for you. So, um, you know, as, as, as survivors, it's like I, I took, I've forgiven my dad as well for abusing me. And, um, and I still talk to him. There's just got to be stronger boundaries. And, um, and so, yeah, that's all. all Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. You know, being abused in the church, that's one of the, 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 the things that they push you know, it's like, well, God forgives you. You need to forgive. There, that is a, one of the major downfalls of of church leadership when they deal with abuse victims. They're, they push for that forgiveness, and and no one has a right to tell any victim they need to forgive. Um, that that's a personal decision, and and each of us come with the word a connotation with forgiveness and it means different things to different people. And I, I tell people, you know, forgiveness doesn't mean that you can own the behavior. It doesn't mean that I remain silent. I mean, my abuser uh, called me up three or four months after I had confronted him absolutely furious with me because I continued to speak out. And he said to me, you know, you said you would try to forgive me and you, now you keep talking about it. And I, I, I said to, that doesn't what mean what forgiveness is. I, forgiving yeah. you does not take away my voice. It doesn't take away my right to tell my truth. And, you know, for me, one of the reasons I tell my story and I feel the need to tell my story is that so many times through the years I had wondered what would have changed in my life had I heard someone else's story of abuse at the time I was being abused? Maybe it would have given me the courage to come forward and tell someone. It would have given me so much of a gift to know that I wasn't alone because we think we yeah. are. You know, even though, even in this day and age of Internet and Oprah and everything else, when you're <laughs> being sexually abused, at least for me, I still felt, well, it's not happening the same way it's happening to me. Um, it's different with me. This is a different. And so we do, do think we're alone. And so when we share our stories, and our stories are powerful, um, each story resonates a different way with each person. So it's important. And, and you don't, you know, I tell victims too, it doesn't mean you have to tell or share your story, but if, you're, if you can, your, your story's powerful to other victims. Yeah. Absolutely. It really is. It's that I, I came to the conclusion that uh, I, that my story was my gift, kind of, because I became interested in helping others, and that helped me, too. But um, sure. I couldn't have helped others if I didn't have the story. So I think this is true for a lot of us, that we have, we have a lot to yeah. offer, but we have to be um, willing to do it. And, you know, of course, we provide um, – opportunities for that here and other places uh, because it's it's really important that we reach out and you know it's, it's not uncommon that we maybe give a talk at some place and then afterwards a couple of people come up to us well I was abused when I was a cop but I never told mm-hmm. anybody you know it happens mm-hmm. a lot yeah yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, so it's powerful and it's it's it is healing it is healing the verb I went to to my, I went I went to mail my book, um, and the postman was standing there, and I kind of knowing because I've been in there a lot. And he said, "What's this?" And I said, "Oh, it's the book I've written." And 
I, he said, well, what's it about? And I said, well, it's about sexual abuse. And there happened to be no one in the post office, which was amazing. Do you know what he said to me? I was sexually abused. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing, yeah. you know, the number of people that you come, and all they need is an assurance to tell someone who's going to understand. You know, he knew he could tell me that knowing I had been through it. Uh, the other incident I had was I was had my book. I was at the car dealership, and I'm sitting there with my book, and um, he didn't say anything about the book, but then he said something to me about, oh, I know what it was. Bill Cosby came on television. And so we, that discussion about Bill Cosby came up, and he said, well, you know, I don't think I know anybody that's ever been sexually abused. And I said, well, I think you do. You just don't know it. But I said, you're talking to a sexual abuse victim. So, you know, it's, it's, our stories yep. can, you know, weave in many different places. Yeah. Sandy, can I ask you um, another question about uh-huh. your family? So, what you know? How was your? How did your mom react? Is she the one that kind of got the help that you needed, or who um, was not, it? Well, you know, if you if you've ever dealt with a charismatic preacher or or someone in the spiritual world like that, they not only groom and manipulate the victim, but they manipulate and groom all of those around them. And so the yeah. church was very supportive of him. He was this wonderful person that no one wanted to believe that he had. I mean, basically they looked at me as the one who had tempted him and I was the reason for his downfall. My mom, yeah. um, person who was like, not sweep it under the rug, but she, there was an embarrassment um, because I was 21 when it was discovered. So, and, he told me that I was to tell everyone it had only been going on for a year. So no one really knew the full scope of the, of the, of the abuse. So my mom, uh, knowing he was going to be moved to the next church, was more like, okay, it, it's over and let's move on. Um, and that was kind of her attitude. Um, and so that probably added to my guilt and shame. It was like, okay, we don't want anybody to know about this. We should be embarrassed. And, um, and so – and she – she didn't have an anger toward him. I, I, again, I think she saw this. This was an affair between two people, and um, let's just get it, move on. So that was that was her reaction. My stepfather was angry. Um, I never told my dad. Um, he, I had a great relationship with him as an adult, but I wasn't involved with him as a teenager, so it wasn't something I would have told him at that time. And then again, it was 27 years that I wasn't telling anyone. And so by the time I had decided to deal with my past, um, he had gotten Alzheimer's. So I never had that opportunity to have that conversation with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have any siblings or anything as I, well? I, I did. Um, I was the oldest of five. Um, but, you know, I, I, de- I never felt like I could reach out to anybody, even during as an adult, again, I think the fear of the embarrassment, but the fear that I would get in trouble. I can remember when I did hire the private investigator, we sat down, and the first thing he said was, I need his name. And I thought, I cannot give you his name. I'll get in trouble. Or I could hear him in the back of my mind saying, you cannot tell, you cannot tell. And, And it was I've said, if she had not been sitting there, I would have gotten up and said, I'm not doing this. I'm not finding him. I don't care where he is, and I'm not going to confront him. But for me, early on, I had that need to confront him. I, As hard as it was, there was something in me that said, 
I wanted to be able to look him in the eye and say to him, I know what you did and you had no right to do it. And that was powerful for me because I think it said to me, you now have taken your power back from this man. Um, And so I was able to do that. It didn't bring me the closure that I'd hoped for. My expectations were much higher than they should have been. And my husband kind of warned me about that. Um, But I'm still glad that I did it. And, um, you know, his life may not have changed dramatically, but I certainly rocked his world for a while. Yeah, I I, um, I confronted uh, the, there were three people that I I named in, in a suit, a two from one group and one from another group, and I I named them all. In the ones in the one case, the the uh, person that I identified was in, was from. Maryland and Maryland is one of those states which had no statute of limitations. Yeah. So uh, they chased, they even got the FBI involved, uh, mm-hmm. ran him down, and reported back to me that they had been at his door. They knocked on his door with a couple of uh, with a couple of agents, and um, he he was asked, "Are you so and so who was serving in the church?" Blah blah blah, and he left the church and so forth. So, but the point was, he was in his 80s. And they were afraid mm-hmm. to extradite him because they didn't want him to die on the plane, you know. So <laughs> that didn't go anywhere. And then the other two were dead. I mean, one was dead and yeah. one was dying. And, yeah. you know, but, the, but you know, you, you, then you find out that this was not the first time with any of them. Not the first no, time with any of them. No. And it no. won't be the last. Well, this one guy was moved from one school to another because he'd had some problems with the kids and they moved him right into another school. I mean, come on, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's sickening that they do that. It's sickening. You think, you know, you're putting those poor children at risk because you want to save this man's reputation or save his job or whatever the reasoning is. I'm not sure. Um, they just don't want to deal with it. And um, it's criminal. It's actually criminal. I mean, it is criminal. There's only 13 states that um, you can prosecute a spiritual leader sexual abuse during a counseling session. Ohio's not one of them. Imagine that. There's only so pastors, priests, and rabbis can take someone into a counseling situation, have sex with them, and there's no legal recourse for that. It's just amazing. And I'm, I'm talking about an adult. There's always recourse if it's a child, but a woman in a compromised emotional situation, she can go to a pastor, he can make an advance toward her, have sexual relationship with her, and she has no legal recourse. If he's a psychiatrist, he loses his license. You know, there's, it it just doesn't make sense. Um, And had my abuser been a teacher, absolutely he could have been arrested. But he was a pastor and that, he didn't fall under that. So, you know, I had no legal recourse. which is frustrating, but again, that's the part that comes in the healing of accepting what you can't change. I, there was nothing I could do about that, and um, it, it just makes me sick that he's still a pastor. I think he's semi-retired now, um, but, you know, I found him. He was a church, and no one in his church, no one knew about his past. No one. I know. I find that I, astonishing. I find that astonishing it, that... And then, uh, and then uh, when I did, 
I sent 11, they had 11 elders in this church, and so I sent letters to each one of them. Did I get a response from any of them? Nope. I was totally ignored. I mean, wow. yeah, totally ignored. So, uh, you know, it's, and at some point, you know, you have to, to, to let go of that, too, because then you look like the crazy person who's, who's running around. You know, I found that when he was ministering in another church, I sent a letter to that church. Well, I got this letter back telling me I was evil, telling me I was only vindictive and that I needed to learn to forgive. And I'm thinking all I'm trying to do is to tell you there is a man in your church who is the leader of your church who has committed sexual abuse and sexual misconduct multiple times over his lifetime, and he's been identified as a sexual addict. And if you want to just ignore that information, then you do so at your own peril, but you are putting the people of your congregation at risk. Absolutely. Absolutely right. It is amazing to me how churches want to ignore this topic um, Mm -hmm. and think they can ignore it. And, um, I mean, I think that's changing somewhat um, because victims are speaking up, you know, like you have, Bill, and, and they now know years ago they could silence their victims, but now we're speaking out. Yeah. Well, you know, we are still self-silenced, and that's going on today. And that's what we started to talk about like a half an hour ago. But that you know, the silence is the problem. You, know, mm-hmm. you have to you have to reach you have to reach people to tell them that's the that's the problem, <laughs> and that the uh, the illumination on the story or the you know the transparency with your story that's the solution. And uh, you have to find a, a place. Mm-hmm. Like we want you to find places, and you certainly can use NASCA for this. That you can if you feel comfortable telling your story because you don't want to tell your story to just anybody. It's a t- you should tell your story to somebody who really um, understands, perhaps because they themselves are a survivor. Uh, but, mm-hmm. the, but the point is, the problem's the secret, and the solution is the transparency or the giving up of the story. And, of course, it's not a one-time thing. <laughs> it, it's yeah. a lifetime thing, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So. No, it is. You're exactly right. Yeah, And, you know, yeah. in writing my book was extremely difficult because – you know, when I was speaking to groups or I was talking to seminary students, I would say, you know, I was sexually abused somewhat, but I have, I told my story tonight. You know, I basically tell the basics of the story. But when you're going to write it down, you have to then relive it. You have to write it in detail. It's, it, you can't, it, you know, I couldn't tell my story by just simply saying I was sexually abused. I had to go into detail about, you know, the the deviant sex. I had to talk about some of the things he asked me to do in detail. And that, you know, it it, it brings a story to life and it it, it demonstrates the devastation. It demonstrates the trauma, but it's not easy to do. But I will say putting that truth on paper was absolutely so healing for me because you know, and originally, you know, I thought, you know, are my children going to read this book and how am I going to, but you know what, I don't have anything to be ashamed of. This was, you know, not my shame to carry. And by writing my book and telling my story on paper really was another avenue of healing for me. Right. Well, see, I think, you know, to victims to write diaries, you know, keep a diary. You don't have to write a book, but, you know, no. Voicing and giving giving your pain voice and giving your pain um, a clarity is is also a way to heal. 
Oh yeah. And we um, we have a lot of things in common, but it's not the abuse that that, ma- that brings us together. It's the trauma. Trauma is similar in all the abuses. <laughs> and it when is. we talk about trauma, it's the trauma is things like you, you, you're afraid to tell your story, and you and you think you're going to be judged, and you're you know you, you, nobody's ever been here before. It's, it's only me. You know, it's all those things. Those are all common, mm-hmm. and they're almost yep. universal. No matter what kind of abuse you went through, so. Um, and the do, trauma do any of the other. Yeah. yeah Say again? Trusting. I mean, the trauma of trusting is too. We that that someone um, is there too. Absolutely, absolutely. You think you know? And when I did tell somebody, I was taken advantage of. So then you have another layer, a big layer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. I tried to be. I tried to be very honest. And it turned around on me. So if you're well, in a I'm situation sure you know, like that, yeah. Yeah, that's very common. I'm sure you know that um, that a lot of um, abuse victims have been have abuse prior in their their lives, and those predators know that and take advantage of that, um, know that that can be a weakness. Yeah, that's not – sadly, I'm, I'm, you know, that you're right. That added another layer of mistrust. Yeah, yeah. Uh, would uh, Lori or Kim like to say anything, or Philip? Um, what helped me a lot was I was um, a firm com- uh, believer in karma because I had seen it happen so much. So it took a lot out. But when I started to tell people about what happened, like the relatives and you know all that, nobody believed me and they didn't want to hear me. They labeled me crazy. They still label me crazy. I've got a niece. I wasn't even born at the time, but she's a hissy fit. She doesn't want nothing to do with me because I'm making it up. Yet she tells her in-laws, people who I don't even know, they just keep the story, you know, make it sound better So because they couldn't believe my father did anything. You know, he was such a socialite and such a happy uh, you know, musician and, and whatever. He was a flirt. So nobody, nobody really, and that's what got me angry. You know, it's bad enough what did to me and all that stuff and how we ruined the rest of my life. But not believing something, um, especially that came out as detailed as it did for me because uh, I had my niece born into his house, and I knew I was not going to let her go through what I did. But So trying to get through to my sister to get her the hell out of there, didn't work. It didn't work, and it it was so aggravating that it started the total destruction of the family. I literally picked up my son. I never let him even actually know them. I only have the one cousin of him. I had to take him out of that toxic environment. You know, you had to do what you had sure. to do for your kids. But yeah, you know, the anger of nobody of people not believing you that'll do it every right. time. Right, Kim, you want to make a comment? Or are you okay? Um, yeah, I was just thinking that when you were talking about how it's so common that these clergy get moved around, and and it's happening in schools as well, because you had mentioned teachers, and um, because I do, I have a lot of friends that when, now that our kids are grown, they become teachers, and I hear some stories, and I just 
sometimes I just look at them and I say, I don't know how you can stay there knowing that there was somebody, there was a pedophile there, and that he just moved on. And I have a really good friend that's in a different school district, and I, I was so mad when she told me that because that was like the first story that I heard. And I said, but I have grandchildren over here in this other school district, and that's what you're doing is just sending them to another area to abuse kids. So, it, yeah, it just gets me going. <laughs> it boils my blood all the time just to think. And I had an administrator one time say to me, Kim, we can't do that. We just, we can't. We can't tell others. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. They're like, well, we don't have any proof. You have proof enough that you fired them. So that should be proof <laughs> enough to not, <laughs> not let them continue. Right. So, yeah, right. I, I haven't had a whole lot of that. And I had, um, I was just thinking about, I wasn't abused in the church, but I was kicked out of my church for 25 years because of some new clergy that came in and decided they had, you know, all of the answers. And so I I just kind of remember that feeling. When you were talking about it, it broke my heart, too, of, you know, kind of being kicked out of your church. It's, it's hard. I had, I'd raised my kids there for 25 years. And so, um, yeah, it is hard. Yeah. And sorry, well, you had to sorry. that even as a child. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. That's, I, yeah. I can feel your pain in that. That's, you know, that's something that should never happen. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I, I educate, I have a, I'm a part of an organization, a nonprofit called Darkness to Light. And so I go and teach Darkness to Light. It's Stuart's children. Oh, yeah. 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 So I'm a facilitator and an instructor with them. And so I go around educating and I'm like, people, you've got to get on board here. You've got to understand. We've got to stop this. We've got to get ahead of it. And I think education is an important part of it because people truly don't, they don't know how to look for the signs. They don't, um, they don't want to believe children just, you know, like she was saying. And so um, I I applaud you for that because education is is so important for people to start looking for the signs and, and, and understand how predators work. You got to understand how they work. You know, that grooming process is pretty clear when you, when you can see it and you've been through it. Um, but it's it's hard to see if you don't if you if you've not been taught the signs to look for, right? And so many adults yeah, don't right. know it. If you if it haven't if you haven't been touched by it in any way in your family, then you're not going to understand. And you know you hear so I think it's so common for people to say, you know, why didn't you tell? Why didn't you just right. tell? Right. And one of the things that I always say is, I didn't know. I had no idea that that was wrong mm-hmm. at the time mm-hmm. that it happened. I didn't know. I, nobody told me it was wrong. Nobody told me it was right. It didn't feel right. But, um, you know, you, you, you're not going to be able to – adults aren't going to understand unless they get some education. Just like, We talk just like, you know, knowing how to take care of your child when they break their arm or their leg. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what to do. Or teaching children mm-hmm. how to cross the street. You know, that is a scary thing that we teach our kids from the time they're born that look both ways to cross the street. So we need to be educating not only the, the kids but the adults. That's my, that's my thing. <laughs> yeah, you're, and you're right. Darkness to Light is a fantastic uh, organization, um, and I'm really happy that Kim talks about it sometimes, happy that she's involved. 
and they are an education group, of course. They they go out in the community uh, and bring materials and get talks and so forth. Well, listen, uh, Philip, do you want to say anything at this point? I don't think so. Okay. Thank you, Philip. Um, let's do this, Sandy. You've talked about, um, you know, the, the abuse, and you've talked about the period of time after the abuse, you know, 27 years. I'd like to finish the show on the upswing of whatever recovery we've, we've all had. So I'm going to ask you to start at that point. Where, After the 27 years that you spoke up, um, how did you figure out where to go and who to talk to? And like, Did you have a therapist? What, how did you do that? Um, well, like I said, I educated myself by reading all I could, and then I did talk to a friend, and then I had a friend who was a counselor, and then I had another couple who were very uh, involved in their church. So since my abuse happened in the church, um, I went to them quite frequently, you know, asking these questions of, you know, how do I deal with the mistrust I feel in God and the church? And so I, you know, I encourage people to talk about their abuse to someone, whether it's a, a professional or someone that you know you can trust. I mean, that, that to me was huge in my recovery. Um, and then, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a very supportive husband, um, and that doesn't always happen. And so, you know, having him support me, and not only in my recovery, but in supporting me and allowing me to speak about my views and, and, and to write the book in such detail that, you know, I think some men would feel uncomfortable having their wives discuss this kind of topic as much. And, and I talk about it a lot to anybody that will listen, and, um, you know, so I'm not shy about it. And yeah. healing's possible. What I wanted, you know, I would want to leave, and I think we that healing is possible, uh, not easy, but it's, it is possible. Right. Um, and there's a lot of paths to healing. Okay, I I usually bring that up too because it's not just you know going to a therapist or or a minister or whatever. There are many um, or, organizations, and there's many. Uh, processes that a person can go through, everything from psychiatry to, you know, philosophies and so forth, to hypnosis to, well, I went through a 12-step program. You know, that's, uh-huh. that's what got me. Uh, I had to sober up, first of all, because I, I drank behind my story, trying to get rid of my story, you know, and that didn't work. Yeah. But <laughs> I had to, I had to get sober first. And in the process of getting sober, you know, I learned about the 12 steps. So I, uh, my, my, my my program is literally a program. It's the 12 steps, you know, and that's what I did. But, you know, there's all kinds of uh, tools and, and, uh, or, and like things like hypnosis. Some people swear by uh, right. animal therapy and art therapy and, you know, um, all kinds of stuff. EMDR, which is eye movement therapy. Um, anyway, the point is that there's, and there's no no problem in starting down one path and deciding, you know, this really isn't for me. Let me try this other thing. That's fine mm-hmm. too. But get yep. started, I think is my message. Get started, you know, and, uh, yep. and you will be surprised, frankly, uh, even in the telling of your story, how your load lightens, you know, the stress and so forth start to disappear. And, uh, you know, you just feel like your life is on a different footing now, mm-hmm. which it is. It is. <clears throat> yeah. 
And, and oh. I like with I I do I volunteer um, for the Hope of Survivors Ministry that helps adult women who've been sexually abused by their pastors. And then I'm also I serve on the um, Council for Child Abuse. I'm on their board, and so both of those organizations have also helped me because when I'm helping someone else, and that obviously helps me in my own healing, and it gives some purpose to what was done to me and the pain that I I've survived. Um, knowing that I'm trying to do something positive, um, just like you know Kim was doing with you know darkness to light, and um, that's also another avenue of healing for some people to be able to volunteer. And some people can volunteer in any aspect, of, whether it's you know uh, volunteering at the soup kitchen. It's 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 learning to step outside of yourself to give back to someone else. Yeah, well put, well put. Um. And, and you you find that being a volunteer or being a contributor, you know, you feel like you have a bit of ownership in whatever it is you're doing, because you're making you're making a difference. It literally, physically, <laughs> you're pouring the soup or whatever. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's a good that's feeling. Good. Yeah, you're it's right. It's a very that's good actually... feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. To not feel yep. like you're 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 being. Uh, Taking, you're, not, you're taking advantage of society. You're actually contributing to it then, and that makes a difference, you know. Yes. So who else had a different uh, experience with their recovery that they'd like to share a bit about? I went a different way. Um, okay. I, I threw myself, and it was a fluke that I even found the world of threads, um, but I did. And it was in my early 20s, and I started embroidering um, constantly because I could think my way through it, but I could see color. So I was doing all kinds of therapy while I was creating what I'm what I create, and I kept it up for oh 40 years already. Um, I threw myself into um, a motorcycle club. That spread awareness, um, like yeah, we do in the biker community. So I was into that for a while. And then um, I take care of a handicapped kid uh, 40 years now, which just means I'm still functioning because everybody else had to put him away. You know, But I, in my head I say, he's not going to grow up like I'm going to grow up, and I'm not going to expose him to people that I can't see him interact with. He was behind the walls of the hospitals where he got abused. So I know a lot about it. At one place, I actually had to take on the Office of Mental Health. I mean, I go to bat when I see something wrong. So um, I spent my years in here with him doing my artwork, um, keeping him out of the, the hospitals. And by taking care of him and teaching him, because he was abused too, and, and to the hospital, he's one of us. Um, he's watched me, and he's come along, and he's actually successful. He turned out to be a musician, an artist, a researcher. His IQ is in the 160s. Uh, that's what I had even taken the last part of the test. It's just something that I taught him. If you want to stay on the outside and be productive, this is how you're going to do it. And he followed my suggestion, got involved, 
and I noticed that he healed from when all of everything really bad happened to him. So the only way to do it is to throw yourself into something that makes you, you know, feel like you're contributing, um, helping others, and um, you're going to feel better yourself. And you'll get to the point one day when you're going to say, everybody's dead, so why do I care anyway? You know, and then you do your thing. And that's what I've done. You know, if they, people come to me, they come to me. I'll talk, I'll listen, and whatever it is I do. And I've had people, you know, break down crying, telling me the stories. In the middle of the store they do it because I, I was wearing my patches. And um, it's my obligation to do what I feel. I, I feel that way. But I do it differently than other people. I'm not like the norm. I, I really go out of my way uh, with what I got. I, mean, I didn't have a good upbringing. And, uh, <laughs> you know, even though I was successful with my embroidery, which saved my life, um, I still feel that I could have had been do- doing more. I should have been able to be uh, exposed to more people who went through what I did. I should have been uh, known about organizations. I should have been known about all like what you're teaching. You know, so by you doing this and letting other people know about it is perfect in my eyes. You know, it's a perfect thing to do. You could get out and do it. You know. When you're well, stuck in the house. Yeah. yeah there's no shortage. There's no shortage, Lori, of people to help, of course. When we talk statistically about how many people uh, have been abused, these are giant numbers. They're millions and millions. In our country alone, there's millions and millions. One time we, they, they, they had an a estimate of 90, 39 million, and then two years later it was 42 million. It goes up like that. Now it's around 60 million people who have been abused. And And probably more. They're they're coming in Mm -hmm. on the – they're like riding the train. Well, if all these people say that they're abused, then it's okay, and I can finally tell my story. So they come out and add to it. That's how it goes up. you got to spread the word. Yeah, there aren't 30 30 million or 40 million or whatever in recovery. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that's how many, you know, experienced child abuse. And and I'm saying that, you know, a huge percentage of that number really needs help, is willing to be helped, but they got to be reached out to. They don't know where to go. None of us did. You yeah, know? I was sure I blind. Had, I had no I, idea where to go. Yeah, and now look yeah. where you are. Yeah, you're amazing. I always tell you you're amazing. Uh, thank you. Well, and when I started, have... I... yeah. Oh, when I, uh, you know, first came on and listened to you, and I could feel where you went, were coming from. You know that you're yeah. definitely a warrior on here. You know, I, yeah, I could tell the difference, and maybe what happened to you is the reason why you're doing what you're doing. You never know. You know, some people believe no this happens. Yeah, well, no for you definitely. Yeah, definitely ah. for you. It's the ones that don't know. They don't understand why. They walk around asking, why did this happen to me and it, I'm stuck? And they don't look for, right. like, a solution because they're not aware of it. You right. know, that's the message we got to get out. <clears throat> right. Well, I'm willing. 
How are you? Are you willing, Lori? Are you willing, Kim? <laughs> yeah, I never shut. You know me. I never shut my mouth. <laughs> I see something wrong. I, I you know, I, I'll say something. I don't care if it's in the doctor's office or wherever it is. You know, if I see it, I call it. I'm known as like the bully in my neighborhood. Yeah, <laughs> that's just how I am. Do the right thing, or you're gonna hear from me. <laughs> It works. <laughs> I go with what works. Yeah. I wanted to invite uh, Sandy, because we have about 12 minutes left or something, um, to tell us a little more about her book. Maybe, maybe something about, you know, some of the chapters or something. It won't have a lot of time to do this, but you'll have some time. And we, we like to end with sort of a, the, on the upswing of what the person has brought to us or is doing for the community or whatever. And I think your book is a big part of it. So I like the fact that it's Prey, P-R-A-Y, you're playing with, and it's P-R-E-Y in the title of the book. So why don't you just go yep. through um, any any parts of it that you uh, think we'd be interested in? Well, um, I will tell you I had the title a long time before I had the book because I, I, that was so – what I felt like, you know, he, he was wanting to pray with me, but instead he prayed upon me. So, um, yeah. yeah, I do like I do like my title, and I think it speaks to the book. Um, you know, I, I, the first part of the book is about the abuse, and um, it's, you know, somewhat very detailed, but I think it has a purpose for that. Then the book then goes into after the abuse and my life of 27 years and how I dealt with that secret and then the third part of the book is about um, my recovery and how I healed and um, some of the obstacles that I had to go through in dealing with the church and how you know uh, you know his wife ended up blackmailing me about something that she thought I could do and I was going to do so there's a it's it's an interesting story apart it's not just sexually abuse I mean the story itself and how I had to deal with the elders and the different people in the church, I think, adds to the story. Um, and, but the last part of the book, then, is uh, more of an educational part of the book to talk about the dynamics of clergy abuse and recognizing the signs, talking about grooming and manipulation and all those things that we, we all know. Um, one person described the book to me as the first half of the book. She said, I, all I could think of was this poor girl, this poor girl, this poor girl. And then I got to the second half of the book, and I was like, you go, girl, you go, girl. So it, it, <laughs> I, I tell people it's a positive book in a lot of ways because it is about recovery and about hope and about healing. Um, I probably don't have a favorite chapter. Um, the most difficult chapter to write, surprisingly enough, was um, I had saved one of his um, a tape of one of his sermons that he had uh, preached on the sanctity of marriage, and I I saved everything. So it wasn't like I was I saved all the church newsletters. I had everything. I had all kinds of documentations for this book, but it but it had always been kept in a box that I had never opened. And so when I started to write the book, I took this tape out and it, I put the, the tape in. Just hearing his voice, I, I I lost it. And so I did have a friend write that chapter of the book because I couldn't do it. I told her, I said, I want you to listen to this tape. Here's what I want to take from the the chapter, and here's what I want to express in the chapter. 
but I don't think I can listen to this tape of his voice and communicate through the the words to the page. So that one, and, and I found it interesting that that was the most difficult chapter to write, uh, which had nothing to do with the physical abuse that I that I endured. It was strictly based on how this how hypocritical he was, and how difficult it was for me to write it because I had to listen to his voice again. Um, I think it's a great book, and I say that somewhat humbly because um, I, I think it expresses the devastation of abuse, but it also then expresses the hope uh, and the aftermath of, of what you can accomplish um, as a victim of abuse. Well, it sounds perfect. So it's got the uh, same pattern we did on the show tonight, pretty much. Uh, yeah. Of telling yeah. The, telling the story and yeah. Well, I'm um, you know I'm impressed uh, by by what you've told us tonight. And I we got about uh, eight minutes left, so let me give some time to the panel, and then we'll come back and have a final thought from you. So uh, be 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 thinking about what you'd like to leave us with. But uh, Lori, would you like to go first? Uh, sure. I, um, I'm very also impressed because you're doing way more than a lot of other people do, and you're not making believe that it's, you know, not a problem. You know, you keep forcing your way through it. And I believe that those of us who have touched with this ugly scar of ours, um, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And I'm glad that there are more people coming out Um with the stories like you've written in your book, you know, because before, before they just weren't. So I get all positive vibes from you, even though what happened to you. So whatever it is that you are doing to heal yourself and help others, it's working for you. Thank and you. And it, it, it was very nice to meet you, too. You as well. Thank you. <laughs> I agree with you. Whatever you're doing, it's <laughs> uh, let's go to um, Kim then and give you a final opportunity to say anything you'd like. Okay, thanks, Bill. Um, so, Andy, I found you on Facebook, but how uh-huh. else can we get a hold of you? Um, I have a website um, which has a lot of good information there as well, and then you can uh, my you can buy my book there, and then my book's also available on Amazon. But my website. Um, it's just my name, so it's www, and then it's S-A-N-D-Y, and then Phillips, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, and then Kirkham, K-I-R-K-H-A-M. So it's just my name. Um, and I've done some articles there and some, um, but, the, you know, it's about, and it's getting a little more information about me on my, on my website there. So those are the two main ways that um, you can communicate with me, um, and I'm happy to, you know, have people contact me if they need to, uh, or if there's someone you think would be beneficial to contact me, I'd be happy to do that as well. Well, thank you, Sandy. I appreciate it. I appreciate all your wisdom this evening as well and just sharing your life story. It was nice to know you. I think nice to get one, to know of you interesting, one of the interesting things, though, I think about her story, Kim, is that you know this is a female talking about this, I know openly, and I don't think we have anybody um, who we could recommend at the, at, uh, until now to another for another female, you know, to talk to. We have we have some males, 
but not females. And you know, we put um, we put the, the emphasis on communicating with each other. Uh, we have a contact list that's you know pretty significant, but um, the people that are there have given me permission to put their email and their phone number there. And you know, they're they're just there because we don't have an 800 number and we don't have a staff. Uh-huh. So you know, uh, they uh, this is an opportunity for the, for a newcomer, for example, to poke around and find some people they like. And, you know, if they find two or three people that they like out of the 30 that are there, that's great. You know, that's, that's a lot to get started. So, you know, I, I just I applaud you for your uh, – I really, I, I heard a lot of honesty. And I also heard a lot of comfortability. Is that the right word? Comfortability, comfort, <laughs> comfortability. <laughs> I, I, you're comfortable sure with your story. You're com- you're comfortable with telling your story, which is great. You know, it's yeah. not. Um, you're not upset anymore. You're accepting. I'm not. And no, you're not. And and what you do is you offer your story, as we said before, to others in the hope that it can help them. And that's that's really um, crux of the whole thing. You know, I I, uh, I really enjoyed having you on the show tonight, and I want you to know that. Um, would you like to give us a final thought of any kind tonight so we can well, just, uh, wrap yeah. the show up? Just that it's been a privilege for me to be among other survivors um, who I just applaud you as well. Um, and I certainly think that what you all are doing in trying to um, promote other people to tell their stories and to listen to our stories is is a valuable. Um, it's well, it's invaluable to, to have that opportunity. So it's been a privilege for me. And again, I I I I, I want to present that feeling of hope out there that you know we will always have this abuse be a part of our life, but it doesn't have to define our life. And as I said earlier, you know, healing for me is, is an action verb. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be a part of this group to be able to say that we can heal and find comfort and strength and courage through our stories. Well, you know, you become a member of the Nashka family once you tell us your story, so you're stuck with that. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you're stuck with us. And call in yeah. anytime you want and be a part of the panel, and, you know, we'd love to just Absolutely. have you call in and be a part well, of it. I'm, yeah, I would love to be more of a part of it. I'm, I might um, touch base with Phil later uh, to see exactly how everything works and, uh, you know, a little bit more about what you do. Um, oh, and yeah. I can do Absolutely. That to, do that to, yeah. you know, an email. Or, or, um, so, Bill, could you do, would you mind giving me your phone number or not? Uh, three two, I give it to you. Three two three. Three two three. Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles. Five, okay, five five, five, five two. Uh huh. Six. Uh, five five two. Six one five zero. Six one five zero. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And my, okay. my phone number is all over the website, by the way. <laughs> you know, so and, and what's if, the you, website? If, if you can't find, say again. Is it just the website is um, N A two A's? Yeah, N A A S C A Nasca. Okay. Dot org. Dot org. Oh, dot org. Right. Okay. 
great, great. And you will you will be amazed if you haven't been to the website. And this is what I'm saying to you and and to anybody listening. You will be amazed how much is there, and it belongs to you. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a community effort that, um, you know, as they say, we consider ourselves members of the Nazca family, and the Nazca family owns it. You know, nobody else owns it. We do. And uh, there's a lot to do, a lot of programs, a lot of services. So enjoy the website. Uh, enjoy the radio show. Yeah. And enjoy the Can whatever. I just say? We have lots of things. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I just want to say, Philip, it was nice hearing from you tonight, too. We're glad you were here with us this evening. Thanks for coming Thank on. <laughs> Absolutely, Philip. Thank you again. All right. Well, I got the signal. Uh, nice so talking to you all. To wrap up the show. <laughs> and I want to uh, thank Sandy uh, for coming on the show tonight and doing such a great job telling her story. Uh, you know, she's got a book that's out called Let Me Pray Upon You. P-R-E-Y, though, pray. And you can find the link to her profile and, and, the, and the book, too, in the description of the show that's written that's attached to the show. So this is Bill Murray saying thank you for listening. May God bless you and the children of the world, and God bless adult survivors of child abuse. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Talk Radio.